0: Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. I'm going to read briefly from Isaiah 49. This will provide us a little bit of context for the sermon passage, which this morning comes from Acts chapter 22. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Acts chapter 22, But first, this morning, let's look at Isaiah 49. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And made me a polished shaft. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, The Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Amen. Through the Spirit, the prophet Isaiah declares to the farthest ends of the world, the coastlands, that one has come forth out of Israel. Someone has been born to the covenant people of God, a servant of the nations, but a servant who shall rise up over the nations, who is indeed too magnificent, too glorious, to be contained within the Israel to which he was born. Indeed, he is worthy of the worship of everyone. My friends, this is the same spirit that ought to dwell in us. As much as we rejoice in the problem of filling up this auditorium, how much more should our hearts long for the sake of the goodness and the glory of Christ for many such auditoriums to be filled. To recognize that our Jesus is too wonderful It's too small a thing for him to just bring back the members of 1st RP of Cambridge. How about if he just bring the whole city? Is he not glorious in his grace? Is he not abundant in his goodness? Is there not a whole city in need of the worship of Jesus? With this in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Our sermon this morning is coming from Acts 22 and Acts 23. We're actually going to pick up the end of the chapter and the beginning of the chapter, and put them together. When Luke wrote this, he didn't write chapters or verses. And so I'm going to pull the two stories together of Paul before the Romans and Paul before this Sanhedrin. So we're going to begin reading in verse 22, Acts chapter 22, verse 22. And I'm going to read down through 23, verse 11. Acts 22, 22 through 23, 11. Hear again the word of the Lord. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care for what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, A dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a great and loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome." Amen and amen. I had a friend in Oklahoma who was very fond of saying, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. I had a high school science teacher married to a man named Walt. In college, she had sworn to all her friends she would never be a high school science teacher and she would never marry that man named Walt. Truly. If you want to see God laugh, tell him your plans. You see, we are awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. We love the illusion of plans and power. We love the delusion of ambition and expectation. And yet the reality is very, very few of us can control our breathing or our sleeping let alone the events of tomorrow or next year. Indeed, if anything has convinced us that we are awfully small and not as strong as we think we are, why don't you look in the reflection of the plexiglass and see your masks? Are we not small creatures? Are we not helpless creatures? And yet, my friends, there is for us great comfort this morning in this text For while we ourselves must daily face the reality that we are not in control of our lives, we're hardly in control of our own hearts or our own minds. Yet the truth is, the good news is, Jesus is in control. Friends, Jesus has got it in control. Jesus is in control. We have only to cheer up. We have only to cheer up and trust him. Let's think about this a little bit. If you're anything like me, having an imperative, a command like cheer up, is awfully, awfully hard to both preach and hear. I'm generally not a cheerful person. I have to remind myself when preaching, smile. I had lots of presbyters when I was coming through my preaching experience as a child, as a young man, rather, who would say to me, Smile when you preach. My friends, we have hearts that are slow to cheer. And yet a text that is before us this morning that is designed to cheer such hearts. Notice first that we find the cheer our hearts are looking for by facing the reality of the world we live in. In verses 22 and 23, Paul is surrounded by a riot of his own people. You see, they were listening carefully to his words until he announced to them that the gospel was for Gentiles. And when they heard that God loved others, they couldn't take that. And they began to shout aloud, Away with this fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. They want his blood. They want him dead. He is surrounded by murderous people who design for his death. They begin to cry out and tear their clothes and Throw dust in the air. There's an insanity to this, a madness to this. In fact, if you can picture it in your mind, isn't there a childishness to this? They're tearing their clothes and throwing dirt in the air and shouting, kill him, kill him. And yet, isn't there also a striking symmetry to Christ who faced the same challenge? You see, my friends, the reality is we are not called, as followers of Christ, to an easy, peaceful ride to heaven. No, this life shall have many trials. Jesus himself said that. We will have many difficulties and many tumults. We will even have, in the case of the Apostle Paul, those who ought to be our friends. Betray us. Abandon us. The irony of this situation is overwhelming. Paul has come to Jerusalem to bring a gift from the Gentiles to feed the victims of the famine. Paul has gone up to Jerusalem to prove his loyalty to the law of Moses. In his effort to love the poor and needy in Jerusalem, in his effort to fulfill the law of Moses he becomes a victim of a riotous mob who is intent on killing him. Sometimes plans don't go the way we expect them to, do we? Have you ever woken up and looked around the room and thought, who are these children and why are they calling me mommy? Have you ever woke up and looked across the pillow and thought, who is that? Have you ever woke up and looked in the mirror and thought, Who is that? Our lives do not always go according to plan. In fact, there is something essentially human, isn't there, about lives that do not go according to plan. And yet, it's not we who are in control. And when our plans do not align with our lives, my friends, it is because we think we're running them. It's because we are trying to plan when it is Christ who has the plan. It is Jesus who has the purpose. And he makes it abundantly clear in the way he provides for Paul in the midst of his situation. Notice the provision that Jesus makes for the Apostle Paul. First, he gives him Roman soldiers. Paul is in the middle of a riot, and the Jews are trying to kill him, but Paul has protection. Roman soldiers come rushing to his aid. And they protect him from the violence of his fellow Jews. But it's kind of like out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Because the Roman soldiers drag him back to the safety and the silence of the barracks where they can whip the flesh off his back and tear his muscle to the bone. You see, in verse 24, the tribune orders that Paul should be whipped and examined. He wants to know what the problem is. He wants to get to the bottom of this riot. And he can't ask the mob. They're so full of confusion and tumult, he can't get the truth out of them. So instead, the tribune turns to Paul and seeks to get the answer out of him. But the tribune, he's just a poor Roman soldier. The only way he knows how to get truth out of an enemy is to torture him. And so Paul is tied up his arms stretched out, his back laid bare, the whips are uncurled, and Paul very calmly turns to the centurion in charge and says, is this lawful? You see, Jesus has provided for Paul Roman soldiers who intervene in the midst of the riot to keep him safe. But what is more, Jesus has provided for Paul Roman law to keep him safe from the Roman soldiers. These Roman soldiers fear the law, as we'll see in just a moment. These Roman soldiers are hardened, violent men, willing to whip muscle from bone off the back of a complete stranger. But they fear Roman law. But they respect Roman law. Do you see how Jesus provides? That he's in control And that this wild, out-of-control mob of Jewish people are yet subject to Roman soldiers. And these Roman soldiers, with their bloodthirsty, violent ways, are yet subject to Roman law. And in all these things, we see Jesus playing them like pawns on a chessboard. Keeping Paul perfectly safe in the middle of all these problems. Friends, your Jesus is able. You can trust him. You don't need to be afraid. Even in the midst of a riot, even in the midst of all the madness that is going on in life, the insanity that fills our hearts and our minds, and we find ourselves drowning in a sea of sin and of sorrow, we find ourselves being afflicted in our innocence. Think about Paul for a moment. He is about to be whipped for the sins of his fellow people. He's the innocent party. And he's the one drug off to jail. My friends, in the midst of such injustice, in the midst of such sorrow, can you see the hand of Christ and how thoroughly in control he is? Let me make it a little more explicit. Paul turns to the centurion and he says, is it lawful for you to whip and to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? You see, Paul knows the law. Paul understands his protection. He's used it before in Philippi. He knows that as a Roman citizen, the way you get the truth out of him is you bring him to court. You make him take an oath. And before the judge, he gives the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He knows that he's safe. And so the centurion, hearing this word, races off to the tribune and says, Hey, you better be careful here. We're about to become a lawless mob ourselves. We who are here to enforce the law of Rome are about to break it. And so the tribune races to Paul and says, You? You're a Roman. You, the one dripping with blood and covered with bruises, who is being beaten in the street by the Jewish mob. You're a Roman? And Paul says, Yes. And the tribune says, How did you get the money? I had to go deeply in debt for this. I had to save a lifetime for this. With a great sum of money, I've acquired this citizenship. How did you do it? And Paul says, I was born with it. I was born a citizen. You see, one day, decades ago, Jesus handed me a get out of jail free card. And now I'm playing it. Jesus is in control. Jesus is playing a Roman Empire like it's a fiddle, like it's a toy. Jesus is raising up kingdoms and empires. He's establishing systems of law. He's bringing about the chaos between the Jew and the Roman. And all the while, he is keeping safe his little Paul. Do you see the mastery of your master? Do you see the lordship of your Lord? The tremendous wisdom and skill with which he can manage nations and empires and kingdoms, in which he can secure his church and his people. Paul, decades before this dark day, was born with the very shield he would need to protect him from the whips of the Romans. Inasmuch as Jesus provided him with Roman soldiers to protect him from the Jewish mob, inasmuch as he provided him with Roman law to protect him from the Roman soldiers, Jesus so too provided him with citizenship that he might stand fast on this fateful day. Do you see the helplessness and the hopelessness of your life? Do you feel that weight of despair? When you look around and you go, I'm out of options. I don't know what to do. Do you know that fatigue that settles deep into your heart, deep into your mind, that says, I've got nothing left to give. I'm exhausted. Jesus comes along and says, yeah, I know. That's right where I want you. Because I've got this. Your illusion of control was an idol to be torn down. Your delusion of self-worth and significance had to fall so that you could come to the true understanding of the world. You are Jesus's. It's his life. It's his business. It's his church. It's his ministry. He's in control. He's the one who has it. You can trust him. You can trust him even when you cannot trust yourself. So the very next day, the tribune decides that he has to pursue this further. You know, he's got to get to the bottom of this riot. What was it that caused this great rage to unleash itself in the streets of Jerusalem? What is going on? He's seeking after this answer that he'll not find. He'll not find the answer. But he seeks it in a new way. He tried first, you may recall... To ask the mob themselves, what, what are you trying to do here? And one gave one answer and one gave a different answer. And it, it's a funny lesson we've uh, discovered in America as well, right? Riots just don't do good at reasoning, it's just not part of their makeup. So instead, he tries to whip Paul into telling the truth. But that doesn't work because it's fundamentally unjust, it's illegal. And Paul knows that, and so Paul pulls out his citizenship card and goes, Right here, here's my number. Here's my social security number. You can't whip me. So now he tries a third effort. In verse 30, the tribune brings Paul down to the Sanhedrin and sets him before the council in Jerusalem that they might hold a trial. Now, of course, many of us know that the Sanhedrin doesn't hold trials, does it? It holds executions. This is the Sanhedrin that stoned Stephen. This is the Sanhedrin that crucified Christ. This is the council that knows how to kill people. Paul is in a perilous place. He's standing there in the temple again, surrounded by all his enemies who want him dead. What could possibly get him out of this one? How does he escape this one? He escaped the riot because Jesus gave him Roman soldiers. He escaped the Roman soldiers because Jesus gave him Roman citizenship and Roman law. But how does he escape the Sanhedrin? How does he get out of their clutches? They're a tremendously successful killing machine. As he stands before them, he boldly faces up to them. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Men and brethren... I have lived with all good conscience before God until this day. You see what Paul has? A clear conscience. Isn't that striking? That Paul would look to his conscience, into his keeping of the law of Moses and say, No, I have been faithful. I have obeyed the law. I have walked in righteousness and holiness. I have kept the word of my God. My conscience is clear. It's such a striking appeal because I'm pretty sure that if you stand before a judge and you say to him, you know what, I'm innocent, he's not going to care. And here's Paul facing the Sanhedrin. Hey, I'm innocent. I have a good conscience until now. I have been obedient. I have been a good Jew. I have followed the law to its natural conclusion, which is Jesus. And I am free of condemnation. This begins to poke at the Sanhedrin. And Ananias looks down, filled with his self-righteous rage, says to the guard standing next to Paul, punch him in the face. Silence him. I don't want to hear from him. And Paul, before the fist could fly, responds with a barb that's aimed right at the heart. You whitewashed wall. You pretense of justice. You fiction of judgment. You who pretend to sit in judgment on me, you're the one breaking the law. I know the law. You're the one breaking it. Paul is the law keeper. Ananias is the law breaker. This rebuke is well deserved. Ananias has a track record of setting aside the law whenever it's inconvenient. He has a track record of doing what is unjust. And so Paul rebukes him rightly, calls him to account. Paul hides himself in the shelter of God's law. And those who are around him are stunned. Would you revile God's priest? What are you doing, Paul? And Paul answers in innocence, Brethren, I didn't know he was the priest. You have to remember, Ananias and Caiaphas had a bad habit of trading off the priesthood with each other, and Paul just didn't know whose turn it was. He's been out of town for three years. He just didn't know whose turn it was. Paul is poking fun of them again. Brother, I didn't know he was the high priest, because I do know the law, the law that says you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You see, in all this, Jesus has provided Paul with exactly what he needs, innocence before the law. Jesus has given Paul a knowledge of the commands of God and a free conscience so that he can stand in the day of judgment and say, I am not afraid. My friends, what is it that we need to stand fast when all this world condemns us and judges us? What is it that we need in order to stand fast when we ourselves condemn us and we fall under our own judgment? I don't know about you, But I am my own worst critic. And the self-loathing that comes and wakes within our hearts, in which we begin to bear down on ourselves and hate ourselves, how do you silence the accuser that surrounds you? How do you silence the accuser that won't shut up within you? We need a good conscience. But how do you get one? How do you get a good conscience that can stand the heat of judgment? Peter tells us it's through our baptism. It's through our union with Christ. It is the gift of Jesus Christ. You see, He's in control. And He brings us into judgment in order to shine forth the radiance of His righteousness. To make known to us how thoroughly He has forgiven us. When He trot outs our sins before our consciences and we feel vexed and flayed by all of our wickedness, we think, Jesus, what are you doing to me? And He looks at us and He says, I'm reminding you how much I've forgiven you. I'm reminding you how much I love you. That you can stand fast in the day of judgment and be not afraid. There is a good conscience for you who are in Christ to know I have kept the law in Christ. Friends, your Jesus is in control. He knows how to provide. He knows how to provide protection in this life. He knows how to provide protection in judgment. And so he also provides a way of escape. Notice in verses 6 and following, Paul understands the situation. He reads his audience well. Some are Sadducees, some are Pharisees. The Sadducees are in power. That's the political party that runs the temple. They're the ones that are collecting all the money. They're the ones that are filling the office of the high priest. They're the ones that are in league with the Romans. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are your everyday teachers. The ones who go about reading the scriptures. They're your pastors, your elders. And the Pharisees believe in the resurrection They believe in spirits and in angels. And so Paul very rightly and truly cries out in the midst of them, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now this is true. He just leaves off one little phrase, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's on trial because he believes that Jesus is alive. Because he believes that Jesus is raised from the dead. He leaves that little piece out. But my friends, this sparks an explosion. Dissension arises. The Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to go to war with one another. There will be no consensus here and no vote. The scribes of the Pharisees leap up and they they even go so far to say, there's no evil in this man. This guy's fine. We like him. What if an angel or a spirit spoke to him? We wouldn't want to fight against God, would we? They couldn't even begin to imagine, could they? What if God himself spoke to them? What if the Son of God in the flesh had been crucified and raised from the dead? What then? You see, Jesus again has provided Paul with exactly what he needs. A way of escape. He's established these ancient factions within the Sanhedrin. So that Paul could wave his finger aloud and say, There is a Christ who is alive and his appeal to the gospel would split the party and cause chaos. The Roman soldier must then intervene and pull Paul back into the barracks. Notice that we've come full circle. Yesterday, the Roman Tribune was running down the street to save Paul from the riot, to pull him safely into the barracks. Today, the Roman soldiers are running down the halls of the temple To grab Paul and to save him and to drag him into the barracks. There's there's a bit of a, a pattern here. And it's driving us to the conclusion. What is happening here? What is going on in the life of Paul? Why is he going around in circles? Why does he not seem to be getting anywhere? Why is all this chaos descended upon his life? Why is such madness filled his heart? What is Jesus doing? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that awkward situation where you're thinking to yourself, what is Jesus doing? None of this makes sense. This death, this disease, this divorce, this breaking of my heart, this confusing of my mind, what is Jesus doing? Paul unlike us, gets a very direct answer. In verse 11, it says that the following night, Paul is seated in the barracks of the Romans, wondering, where does he go from here? Who's going to get him first, the Jews or the Romans? How's he going to go? Are they going to crucify him like Jesus? Are they going to beat him and whip him? Are they going to throw him into the street? break his body with stones, like Stephen? Is he going to die in the morning, or is he going to die in the next day? There, in the very dark of night, in the very depths of despair, on the very edge of death, Paul looks up. Do you see what Luke says? Jesus stood by him. My friends, when your soul screams... What is Jesus doing? Turn to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. He is standing by you. That's what he's doing. He is standing right beside you. He said in Matthew 28, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We confess in Hebrews chapter 13, we can confidently say, He will never leave me nor forsake me. Here is Paul on perhaps the darkest night of his life. When all his plans are coming to nothing, that mission to Spain doesn't look like it's going to happen. That sailing to Rome doesn't look like it's going to happen. Getting out of Jerusalem alive doesn't seem to happen. And here's Jesus standing by him. My friends, here is comfort. Here is courage. Here is cheer. There is no dark night you walk through that your Jesus doesn't walk with you hand in hand. There is no sorrow you bear that he does not feel. There is no sin that he has not seen and forgiven in Christ, in his death. My friends, Jesus stands by you. He does not forsake. He does not abandon. And so he says to Paul, be of good cheer cheer up Paul cheer up I'm here I'm with you it's going to be okay and then he gives him this promise for as you have testified to me in Jerusalem so you must also bear witness at Rome this is one of the watershed verses in the book of Acts It is that key verse on which all the narrative now begins to swing. Up until this point, Paul was executing his plan to go to Rome. But now Jesus has appeared just as he did on the day at Damascus, in which he turned Paul's whole life around. Jesus has now once again appeared to him that he could see him standing with him. And Jesus has said to him, you must surely bear witness to me in Rome. Paul, you'll get there. Paul, you'll get there. Dear saints, what is Jesus doing in your life? He's getting you to glory. I know that when you look at your marriage, it's really hard to see how that's getting you to glory. But it is. I know when you look at your children, when you look at your parents, you think to yourself, this is the road to glory? Oh, it is. This is what Jesus is doing in your life. He is standing beside you, holding your hand, and carrying you to glory and saying, You will and must surely bear witness to me in heaven. I will bring you safely home. He's got it all under control. We look at our jobs, we look at our work, we look at our church, we look at ourselves, and we say, What is Jesus doing with all this? It's such a mess. And Acts chapter 23 says, I'm standing right next to you and I am making you sinless. That's what I'm doing. I'm fitting you for glory. I am bringing you to the purpose for which I made you, that you would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm equipping you and training you to worship my Father, to enjoy Him I have a little biography upstairs in my study. It's a biography of Jack Miller. It's called Cheer Up. Because one of Jack Miller's favorite phrases was Cheer up. You're worse than you think. And Jesus is better than you ever imagined. Dear Saints, this is the heart of the gospel. We're more messed up than we ever imagined. And Jesus is so much better than we ever dreamt. He's in control. He knows how to get us into trouble. He knows how to get us out of trouble. And best of all, He knows how to use all our troubles to make us ready for glory. There's another Miller I knew. He was a missionary. He was a missionary in a country where it was illegal to be a missionary. And when he arrived there, the government arrested him and said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm here to be a missionary. And I remember him very vividly telling us in our class in seminary, young men, you are immortal until your mission is finished. Jesus is in control. He knows what he's doing. You can trust him. You really can. Dear saints, you can trust your Jesus. You can cheer up. Dear saints, Jesus is in control. Let's cheer up. Let's trust Him and let's cheer up. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. For this story in which we see clearly the sovereignty of our Christ, who has set in motion things long ago that they might come to fruition at the right time. We thank you that we see in this text the loving care of Christ, who would visit us in our darkest days and remind us that he is with us and will never leave us. We pray, O God, that as we go through the trials and tribulations of this life, we would look to our Jesus and find that he is near, And he is ready. He is willing and able to help. We pray, O God, that we would commit our plans, our dreams into his hands, and that we would confidence find that he is a Christ worthy of such dependence, of such faith, that he shall indeed deliver us in his day. Father, grant us grace that our hearts would hope in him and in no other, and that our hearts would find courage and cheer and fearlessness because of his presence and peace. O oh, grant us this grace, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.